0: We are here today uh, celebrating Oak Valley's third anniversary. Along the way, God puts people in our lives, uh, and he has yours, folks that have encouraged you. Uh, Grace and I was reminded of your testimony and the relationship that you uh, and Boonie have and the way that he encourages you and you encourage him. Um, our speaker today uh, and the one who will come and deliver God's word and read God's word and explain it to us today, uh, is just such a person in my life and has been uh, for many, many years. Uh, this isn't about Mark, but I will say this, that in the early days of Oak Valley, uh, Adam and Booney and I had an opportunity to go up and visit with Mark. He opened his home up to us, uh, opened his church and uh, his fellow pastors to us because they had walked through uh, a similar steps over the course of the years in planning. Uh, it wasn't easy, it was hard. Uh, but God had uh, granted them to be able to continue in ministry. Uh, They uh, encouraged us, uh, gave us some sound counsel, prayed for us, and they have continued to do that. Um, This isn't to honor Him, and this isn't to reward Him. It was just to say that on this particular Sunday, because of just how special it is for us in celebrating our third year, uh, we just thought it would be good to have someone who has watched us and observed us from a distance to just come and share God's word uh, with us. Someone who's prays for us uh, and who loves us and uh, uh, and we love him and Mandy. Thank you. Mark, will you come?
1: Thank you, Jimmy. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here this morning. Um, the church planting can be Um, challenging and um, forever changing, haphazard, painful, joyful, um, excruciating, and uh, a lot of things that we've hoped for that we thought would, uh, this would be it if we could just get here, if we could have this building, if we could have this staff, if we could replicate some of these things and and maybe send other people out, um, then we would feel like we've kind of reached uh, the goal. Um, But uh, I would just like to uh, ask you to think with me this morning um, about something that is um, really burdensome to me, but near to my heart, and and that's the issue of what's really important um, in the church. What's really important when we plant a church? What do you want to see? Looking back over 15 years, and Jimmy was the first person that ever spoke at um, South Point, the, the church that I pastor, besides me. Um, I've tried to get Aaron King to come for 15 years, and he can't make his way over to Atlanta. Um, but he did speak uh, for me at my church before uh, South Point at Macedonia Baptist Church and Aaron. You may remember uh, those days. Um, I-, I learned so much from Aaron King and um, love him and would sit at his feet all day long and let him teach. Aaron, every time you mention a book to me, I go and buy it. I'm not saying that I've read it, but, uh, but I've got them on the shelf, but, but just thinking through our 15 years, if you were to say, what would you like to see at your church right now, 15 years into it? Um, and, and I would like to see, um, certainly our people to be doctrinally sound. I love God's Word. I would love for them to love God's Word. I, I would love to see transformation in the hearts and lives of our people. I want to see our people grow spiritually. But I think the, the primary thing that I would love to see in the hearts and lives of our people... Um, would be the, the nature, the character, the quality of how we relate to one another. Um, I would uh, love to see uh, our love for one another grow more and more and more and more. And so that's why I'm looking at First John chapter 4 this morning. I'm going to look at verses 7 to 12. Um, and I want to talk about uh, about the command or this uh, this exhortation in First John, beginning in verse number seven, to these people that he's addressing to love one another. Now, before we look at that text, um, I'd, I'd like for you to consider how John has laid out his work, but I'll only do it for the latter part of First John. Uh, we know that John has been teaching all the way up to First John chapter four and verse number six. But when he comes to verse number 7, he begins, begins a section all the way down through chapter 5 and verse number 12 of, of exhortation or practical application of what he's already said. And he, he begins with three things. Um, first of all, he uh, begins to talk with them about, um, about their love for one another. Secondly, he talks beginning in... Um, verse number 2 of chapter 5, about their obedience. And thirdly, he talks to them finally before he gets to verse 13 about uh, their doctrine, about their belief. Those, those are the things that John is, is pressing on the people after he's gotten through teaching and he's exhorting them to say, these are the things that I want you to act on. And then finally, in 1 John five thirteen to the end of the book, he gives them a summary again of what he's already um, taught. So I want to deal with these verses that are before us today and challenge you on how you relate with one another. Challenge you today and challenge my heart on how we relate um, as the body of Christ. Um, I'm not here to talk about coronavirus. I'm not here to talk about politics. I'm not here to talk about the weather. You're going to, you're going to, we walk in drunk on those things. We hear it on the radio, we see it on our news feed, it's on the television, it inundates us. The body of Christ ought to be a place where we go and get a taste of heaven. You ought to be able to come together as the body of Christ, as the people of God, and experience some of what's going on in heaven. Um. I'm captivated by this thought. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we supposed to be doing here? Well, figure out what they're doing in heaven. Think about that. And then we maybe can decide what somebody walking in and off the street, worried about everything else that the world is throwing at them, should be experiencing when they come in here, and there should be something that exists that is tangible, that is real, that is relational, that is powerful, that is supernatural in the way that we relate to and love one another. And that's what John's driving toward this morning. So let me read the text, and it's broken up into three sections. Verses um, 7 and 8 give us um, this exhortation. He tells them what to do. Uh, Verses 9 and 10 uh, gives us this demonstration of what he is exhorting them to. And then verses 11 and 12 give us an application of what he has demonstrated. How now do we do what do we see Christ doing? So uh, we see we see this exhortation, beloved let us love one another, for love is from God, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That is so clear, so emphatic. He's not making any bones about it. He's giving us what is right and giving us the exact opposite of it so that we don't miss what He's driving toward. Beloved, let us love one another. But then in verse 9, He gives us this demonstration. It's not just some haphazard feel-good about everybody. It's not um, just us um, saying that we love one another or loving in earthly ways, but it's a completely different kind of love. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Right? That's how God is demonstrating His love, manifesting His love, revealing His love. He goes further, in this is love, he says it twice, in this is the love of God, in this is the love of God, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now he's going to put it on us, this is the application, beloved, he says beloved again, he says it twice, it's an important word. Beloved, if God so loved us, if this is the way, if this is how God's love has been manifested, and this is how God has loved us, then, then, then we also ought to love one another. In, in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. If, if you If you want to show somebody God, invite them in to the community of believers and let them see this kind of love that is circulating, that is ruminating, that is existing in these relationships with these people. And you will see Him as clearly as you will ever see Him on this planet. Among the body of Christ as they love God. One another. So, um, let let us look at at the exhortation verses seven and eight. Some of you thought I was done, um, and I'm I'm just getting started. Um, The the exhortation. There are two things in the exhortation. There is the conspicuous presence of love, and there is the conspicuous absence of love. And I can't get past the first word. And if you get past the first word, then you're going to miss everything else of the passage. He uses this term, beloved, and and that's that's profoundly important. In fact, just stop. Just stop what you're doing. Clear your mind. Put your phone down. Stop texting to somebody across the room and and asking, why in the world did Pastor Jimmy bring this guy in? Um, And just stop and just think for a minute about the word beloved. If we understood the word beloved, we could just stop there and and say, I want to just... When you, when you get around something that's, uh, that's uh, aromatic and something that you want to just take in, you want to soak in, we, we just kind of use these hand gestures. I want to soak that in. We need to soak this in. We need to soak in the fact that as he begins to write, he is writing to a people who have had the love of God set upon them, but he is also writing to a people that he himself, as the writer, as one who has been with Christ has set His love upon them as well. And this goes to the very heart of our identity. Who are we on the face of this planet? Who are we as we exist? And we must see ourselves as a people that are beloved. God's love has been set upon us. We are uh, the beloved people. That That is where we stand, no matter what happens to us. That is who we are. If we don't see that, we don't understand anything else in the text. And John goes to great pains to mention it twice so that these people know who they are. Beloved is a term that that essentially um, is is a messianic title, but it also refers to those who are believers. Those who have experienced the love of the Father and of of the Spirit and of the Son and love for each other. Those are the beloved that are experiencing love both Personally, internally, externally, relationally, and practically. Beloved, let us love one another. The word love is mentioned 744 times in the Greek and Hebrew, and the basic word for love in Greek and Hebrew is mentioned, six times, is mentioned 13 times in these six verses, so that is extremely important. What is this love that he's talking about? Um, it, is, it is divine love, and it encompasses affection and care and interest and cherishing and taking pleasure in. But it is also a love of reason. It is a decisive love. There is one who loves, and he determines to set his love on these that he will love. It is a love that sets, listen, this is important. It is a love that sets its affection on an object and does not waver from it. We need to understand that. That is love unlike anything that we've experienced. It's In the Old Testament, it's the, the steadfast love of the Lord, the hesed love of the Lord. I would suggest to you that neurobiology would tell us, apart from Scripture... You just go talk to some atheistic neurobiologist and he will tell you that the left side of your brain, the rational side of your brain, does not function properly until the right side of your brain, the relational side of your brain, has experienced steadfast love. We were created that way. God has created us to have love set upon us and that love be an unending, uh, never-quitting Love. That's what He's talking about when He talks about us loving one another. And so, beloved, let us love one another. It's the love that the Father and the Son have for each other. John 17, verse 26. That the Son is crying out to the Father and saying that He wants us to have with each other. Steadfast Agape love. So, beloved, let us, let us love one another. Those who are the beloved are tasked with being in this place, this sphere, this community, where everyone is loving one another. He gives us these reasons for love. Why should we love one another? It's right here in verse number 7, and and he lays it out. We we should love one another because if we're in a relationship with God, love flows from God. For love is from God. Love is not self-generated. You don't love because you're a loving person. You love because love is generated, originates in God. The natural man doesn't love. Our heart needs to be transformed because because we are broken, we are fallen, we are sinful, we are dead. But Christ comes in and makes us alive And God loves us, and the love that we have that should exist between us right here this morning exists. We can love one another because love is from God. Secondly, why should we love one another? First of all, because love is from God. Secondly, because love is the evidence of regeneration. He makes it clear in the text. If we have been born of God, we will love If the life of God has been generated in us, then we cannot help but love because He is love and love comes from Him. He gives us a a third reason. If we have been born and love is generated out of us from Him, we will know Him. Love is evidence of spiritual knowledge. It is evidence of a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it is also evidence of this spiritual knowledge. He says, anyone who has been born of God knows God. Knows God experientially. Knows God internally. Knows God practically. And so, there is this conspicuous presence of love, but then there is the conspicuous absence of love. Why does he mention this? Because he's already been covering issues related to doctrine. He's been covering issues related to Christology. He's been covering issues related to morality. He's been covering issues related to how to discern truth and and error. He's been covering issues right off the bat from chapter 1 about how we are supposed to relate to one another. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. How do we relate? If we walk into the community and we say, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We we're lying. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all un righteousness. He's covered so many things in the text, but I think John is keenly aware at, at his old age writing to these people who probably are experiencing all kinds of things in the church from, from discouragement to, to pride when you come to third John when he's dealing with diatrophies. All kinds of things are going on in the church. I don't know about your church, but at my church, Some folks think that being just really, really good is enough. And there are a lot of really good moral people that are unloving. Some folks think that if they've dotted every I and crossed every T on their doctrine, that that's enough. And some of the angriest people on the face of the planet are doctrinally sound. And unloving. We see that over and over again. We see it in the church at large. And so, he's not saying that we shouldn't live moral lives. He's not saying that we shouldn't love truth. He's not saying that we shouldn't be doctrinally correct. But he's saying if you have those things, much like Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, right, uh, you can be the most amazing person in the world. You can have the greatest gifts in the world. You can, you can be the most knowledgeable person in the world, but if you don't have love. And so he quickly goes to the, the opposite because there are people who are unloving but say that they are believers. And he's saying there is this conspicuous absence of love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And if you know God, He has generated this love toward you this in you that should be flowing out of you, particularly in relationship with other people that are following Him. God is love and you can't truly know God and not be loving. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the ultimate test of our profession of faith is our love for one another. I would say it like this. There is nothing that says more about the authenticity of our faith than how we love one another. And so he gives this exhortation. This exhortation with the the conspicuous presence of love and the conspicuous absence of love. But then secondly, he gives us this, this manifestation. He says, in this the love of God was made manifest. The love of God is brought to light. The love of God is made visible. In this, the love of God is made plain. In this, the love of God is made apparent. In this, the love of God is brought into plain view. That's what he's, what he's telling us in the text. In, in, in what, John, are you talking about do you want to do you want to just say well i just love everybody and everybody's talking about love but there's no specificity to it it's just some emotion that's just kind of just kind of ruminating through the atmosphere that nobody can put any definition to no no love is very specifically illumined or manifested or shown or made visible or made plain to us and it gives us two things He gives us two things, and I've already read the text, but I want to give you what those two things are. Number one, the love of God is life-giving. The love of God is life-giving. He's he's, he's laid that out so clearly in the text. He, He loved, so He sent His Son. Holy God, offended in the fall, sent His perfect Son to a fallen, hostile world. To human beings that were dead who were deservedly dead in sin. And He came to those dead people, those enemies, those people that hated Him, those people that were running from Him, those people that killed His Son and He gave them His life. God's love is life-giving. We see it in John 1, He is light and He is life. We see it in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting Life, we see it in John ten. I've come that you might have life, and that you might have it more uh, abundantly. We see it in John fourteen six. I'm the way, the truth, and uh, the life. We see it in Colossians three, when Christ, who is your life, shall appear. We see it in Ephesians chapter two. And I just have to, I just have to read Ephesians two. We've got to understand that the the just what a, a magnanimous work God has done in giving us life. He says, "And you were dead." in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. That's where we thought life was. Whatever you're doing right now, whether it's, it's sin or it's darkness or it's idolatry, whatever you're doing right now is where you think you find life. So I don't know why I do that. Because you think life is in it. And if Jesus Christ doesn't change your heart, you will never believe that He is life. Among whom we all once lived, we thought we lived there in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The manifestation of the love of God is that His love is life-giving. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. Yet not I. But Christ lives in me. God's love is life-giving. When we are in Christ, there is... uh, And I may be using this word wrong, Joe. But Joe uses it a lot and I look it up every time. He shares it with me. Um. There should be this existential, supernatural, distinct, tangible, aromatic life form called love in every believer. There should be this aroma that comes from us. This life flowing from us because of this life living in us. God's love is life giving Secondly, God's love is sin-bearing, verse 10. He he loved, and He gives life, and He loves, and He bears sin. Since love is generated outside of us, since love is based on uh, regeneration, we don't, apart from God, love God. Not that we have loved God, He says, but it is because God has loved us. If any of us ever love God or anyone else, it is solely based on who God is and what He has done. And I hope that doesn't offend you, but the goal of that is to give Him all of the glory. Even in this, this simple, overused, worn-out term that is, that is ill-defined and, and not clearly with a, a point on the arrow uh, communicated to us, the love that we have is because of His love for us, and His love is a love that caused Him to send His Son. And His Son, He says in this text, is the propitiation for our sins. He mentions that in First John chapter two, and verse number two. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, Jesus standing with us. God is justly and righteously angry at sin and sinners. He is holy. We can't, I don't believe, understand the gospel until we understand that. Some people don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear the negative side of it. That's really the positive side of it, that God is holy. You cannot get the death of Christ, His payment for your sin, or His love for you until you begin to see the extent of your sin and the distance that you are from God and the distance that He covered to get to us to bring us to Him. What great, great love. God is justly and rightly and righteously anger at sin and sinners. The word propitiation, a lot of people define it a lot of different ways. I'll try to give you the simplest form, and if it's not the one that you agree with, um, please forgive me. But propitiation is, is essentially a means of appeasing anger or averting wrath. God was angry, God could justly in His holiness and in His righteousness pour out His wrath on you and me for our sin. But God sent His Son as a means of appeasing His anger and wrath on behalf of our sin. He sent His Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sin to satisfy His requirements. He did this because He is loving. In this is love, is what the text says tells us not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins to satisfy his requirements on behalf of our sin with the death of his son so there is legitimate offense instead of holy God settling the offense by punishing the offender he sends his perfectly innocent and holy son and punishes him instead of us so that He can accept us unconditionally into His presence. That is love. I hope that doesn't make you uncomfortable. I'm sure it doesn't. Oak Valley. But unless we understand that, then we do not understand love. So that is the manifestation. God's love is life-giving. God's love is sin-bearing. The third thing I want us to look at in the next two verses is the application. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How do we love one another? Our love should be life-giving and our love should be sin-bearing. Our love should be life-giving and our love should be sin-bearing bearing there is the, the reality of the presence of jesus christ in our life and the transformation of our interior world that manifests itself most powerfully in how we relate to other people from a transformed heart that that is that is the love of christ And if His love gives gives life, then His love in us and through us should be life-giving. Now, I, I don't know how to explain all of this. I just know what the text says. But I also know when I get around somebody that sucks the life out of me, or could walk into a room with a countenance of contempt or anger in their heart and could suck the life out of the room. Have you ever been around anybody like that? And I also know when I'm on the phone or I'm sitting across the table or I'm just in conversation and I interact with people and there's life-giving in that transaction. I know the difference. I can't give you a checklist. I can give you, I can give you a, a uh, uh, somewhat of a checklist, um, over in Galatians 5. Um, you know what the fruit of the Spirit is? The fruit of the Spirit is the love of God flowing out of the believer who has experienced the love of God. The fruit of the Spirit is the love of God that is flowing It is the life of God in a believer that is flowing out of him or them. But the fruit of the Spirit is is love, joy. All, All of this is relational. All of this is in the context of community. All of this is something that that literally flows out of and emanates from a human being who says Christ is in them. You can't manufacture any of this. You can't look at this list and say, I'm going to try harder at this. You can look at this list and say, the Spirit is living in me. I'm surrendered to Him. I want to be full of Him. And when I'm full of Him, this is what is flowing out of me. Life is flowing out of me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no against against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. No, loving one another. Our love should be our love should be life giving. Um, I remember when I went to my first church in 1986 in Harolds, North Carolina. Um, Jimmy, I think you served in interim, or you preached there, or preached revival there, um, and asked me to come up and sing. And by the way, I just got a flugelhorn, and, uh, and I asked Jimmy, I said, Jimmy, could I come over, can I bring my flugelhorn with me and play it? And he said, uh, and Jimmy, he was as resolute and as firm in his answer as he's ever been with me in any question I've ever asked him. He said, absolutely not. He did not want me playing my flugelhorn. Um, he said, you can sing if you want to, but I'm not going to sing this morning, Jimmy, just because you made me mad about the flugelhorn. Um, but Jimmy was preaching a revival at Riverside Baptist Church, and I remember going over there and singing one night. Um, and, and so Jimmy knows the, the, the church that I'm, that I'm talking about there, but... Um, I used to visit an elderly lady, Miss Pearl. And Miss Pearl was in her 90s, lived in an old house. And if the trees, if the, if the uh, evergreens hadn't been around the house and they planted them on the wind side, the wind would have blown right through the cracks in the walls and she'd have probably froze to death. So thank God for those trees. And I'd go sit down and, and visit with her. And, um, and I, found, I found out that her husband had a son named Calhoun Johnson. And I got a chance to meet Calhoun Johnson, he had been a missionary. And um, Calhoun Johnson was life-giving. Me and Mandy would go see him and we had Michael, our youngest at the time Um, and you would just get around him and you would just feel the love of God that's the way we ought to be folks that's the way we ought to be our love should be life-giving secondly, by way of application, our love should be sin-bearing. When someone sins against us, we want to get even. We want them to pay. We, are, we have anger in our heart toward people right now because they have offended us. And we will forgive them when we feel like our anger has caused them to pay sufficiently for their offense against us in the name of Jesus when we are sinned against we think that we have the privilege of running and hiding we feel like i've heard people say to me well i don't have to forgive them until they ask me romans 5:8 says something different in my opinion But God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't think we should be looking for reasons to hold stuff against folks. (laughs) But we do. Our love should be sin-bearing. When someone offends you... A friend of mine uses this term, and I don't know what he means by it, but I'm figuring it out. He says, I can hold that. I can hold that. I can take that. When my wife sins against me, you know what I normally do? I I sin back against her. But now I've, I've gotten the story kind of wrong because I sin against her more than she sins against me but I want to get her back. I want to say something back. I want to hurt her back. If, if I perceive something as a jab, I want to get her, and that's, that's where we are instead of maybe me being offended or her saying something that didn't sit right with my manhood. The head of the house, praise God. Wives, well, submit to your own husbands. Can I, can I bear that? Can I take that? Can I hold that? Can I bear that burden with her? Can I carry that? Our our love should be sin-bearing. You say, what about church discipline? I believe in church discipline. I I don't believe in people just just sinning and and dragging that sin into the body of Christ. But even church discipline itself is, is, is a means of loving and restoring and going to people over and over again and calling them in love to repentance. So I'm not trying in any way to... Discount church discipline. But I am saying when we in the body of Christ are sinned against and we're going to be sinned against, we can't react to sin against us in this community like the world does. We handle it differently. We bear that sin and we don't let that sin become a factor between our relationship, our interaction, and our love one for another. We just, we just don't. We don't drag it into the relationship. Our love should be sin-bearing. Our love should give us the capacity to set people free from sin. Christ and Christ alone forgives. I'm not saying that I'm a priest somehow that can forgive somebody's sin, but our love should give people the capacity to be set free from sin. Our love should give people the capacity not to be held in bondage by sin. Why? Because we have been forgiven. And we can forgive others based on the gracious forgiveness that was afforded to us through the finished work of of Christ I don't have any great explanation to the application (laughs) I wish I could preach on about it all I can give you is these two lines to say our love should be life giving and our love should be sin bearing and then all I can do is point you back to Jesus Christ that's all I can do So I can't give you a list of things to do. But I can also point you to how I've interacted with people who have borne my sin. And this is not a sinful thing, but this is a picture of what the body of Christ ought to look like if we're going to be life-giving and we're going to be sin-bearing. My first church out of college, I was the assistant to the pastor. And the pastor said, your job is to do anything that I don't want to do. And, uh, and I said, thank you so much. That just, you know, destroyed and already destroyed self esteem, right? And so I went in and did everything the pastor didn't want to do, including fill the baptistry. And one Friday afternoon, I went in and I turned the baptistry on. The baptistry was filling up. And I went home. And I came back to church the next morning for a men's meeting. And we ate breakfast. And the pastor was teaching. And all of a sudden, at about 10 o'clock Saturday morning, I, re- I remembered that I turned the baptistry on at about 3 o'clock Friday afternoon. And I'm sure I turned all different shades of colors, it scared me to death. <laughs> I jumped up, I ran into the sanctuary, and water was coming over the side of the baptistry like Niagara Falls. Just shoo. water had already made its way a third of the way up that little slant in the floor of the sanctuary. I had ruined the place. I had to ruin the place. I went back in and the men were meeting there and I, uh, I told them what had happened and nobody said a word to me. Nobody said a word. Nobody said, i tell you what, you got yourself into that mess and the best way to learn a lesson is for you have to clean it up yourself. So you just get in there and you clean it up. If it takes you to, to, to service time tomorrow morning, you're going to do it pastor didn't look at me and roll his eyes like I was an idiot. Everybody jumped up. Everybody started getting the squeegees and finding wetbacks and shoveling and pressing water. And every everybody in that room acted like they were the ones that had let the baptistry run over. They were Bearing my foolishness. They were bearing, they were bearing with me, for me, standing there with me, saying, yes, you've got yourself in a mess, and, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to deal with that mess with you. That's a, a small, inadequate picture of sin bearing. That's what Christ has done for us and when we find our brothers and sisters in sin we should roll up our sleeves and we should jump into the pit with them and nurture them to health and equip them and love them and drag them out of the miry clay and set their feet upon a rock. And I know Christ and Christ alone does that but He uses us to communicate His love. Our love should be Life-giving, our love should be sin-bearing. I, I, I was thinking about this text, and I was thinking about coming over here this week, and um, I was thinking about, and I'm, I'm almost done, um, what, um, what was going on in my own heart. And I texted a friend of mine that, that I, I communicate with, regularly he's he's in our dna group is where men meet with men and i found so much life in meeting with five guys on wednesday morning from eight to ten if you're not in a small group bearing your soul to other brothers you're you're really missing it um i, I love these men uh, they love me and we we're into the nuts and bolts and we're into the issues of our heart and we're shepherding one another's hearts and uh, the truth of Scripture. And so, um, but, but I was just riding around because, you know, sometimes life can be um, what I consider transactional. Everything's transactional. Where I, I, you scratch your, my back, I'll scratch yours. You do something for me, I'll do something for you. I did a favor for you, you do a favor for me. And that's, that's kind of the way, in a lot of ways, that's the way marriage is. You say, no, no, marriage isn't that way. Well, well, why doesn't marriage work out so well? It doesn't work out so well because everything's transactional. If you don't live up to your end of the bargain, You're fired! That's the way we are relationally. Everything's transactional. That's the only way we know how to live is transactionally. And I wrote to my friend because in church you just have to deal with transactional people. A lot of times folks want something. They want their way. They want what they want. They want their agenda. They come to you and they're like, hey, would you do these things? Would you do these things? Well, when you say no, you find out what your relationship's really like. You find out that it's extremely profoundly transactional. And so I texted him and I said, I said, all of life is transactional. (laughs) And I'm flat broke. I just can't do transactional relationships anymore. It's so exhausting. Does anybody, anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it's just so exhausting. He, he wrote this back to me. And, and I, I say this in dealing with verse 12. No one has ever seen God. He's talking about His love for us. If we love one another... God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Here's what he wrote. He said, I remember the day I went bankrupt at the cross when I had no more promises of doing better next time. No more penance. No more willpower. No more ability to obey the command to love than a rock on the ground. Most nice atheist had more willpower to obey the commands of Jesus than I had. My pedestal of personal willpower had completely collapsed, and it was and I was buried under it. I couldn't trust. I couldn't obey. I was suicidal for days, literally in the fetal position for days in bed, afraid to move. I had one hope: he would have called me beloved, because I knew that I was never going to stop. He's talking about his sin. I had no hope that I would ever get better. Rachel, his wife, drove me to counseling a few days. She had to drive. I was too suicidal. After all the counseling, she told me to join a group. That's when I sat in the circle and told all the worst things about me to a group of men, the fellowship of the broken, and looked up to meet their eyes and saw love and grace for the first time in all my years of ministry i experienced the gospel i think for the first time when they said welcome we are glad you're here that transactional rat race was over i was beloved you say what what is that that is that is this no one has ever seen god but if we love, and our love is life-giving, and our love is sin-bearing, if we love one another like Christ has loved us, God abides in us, and His love is completed, is perfected, is matured, is manifested in us by how we relate to one another. What am I, grand And I'm with this. I'm I'm done. Um, one of my grandsons turned 11 yesterday. I have, a, I have 11 grandchildren, three boys, eight girls. And and my wife is, she, she's always telling me with the girls, she's like, grab those little girls and hug them. I'm 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 a protector, you know. I'm just always looking for danger. Is there a drop cord to trip over? Is you know is there an outlet cover? Not on. Is, is there a wheel loose on that contraption there riding down the hill into the street where tractor trailers are driving by and I'm just like, I'm always running around, don't get hurt, I'm, I'm the police, I'm not, I'm not the lover, she's the lover. My little granddaughter's come bouncing up to me and, and they're so excited to see me and my wife's just said, grab them and just hug them and tell them how much you love them. And so I'm, I'm learning to do that, I'm getting better at that. Um, I I reckon I am, maybe I'm not Um, I think about my 11 year old grandson I think about these kids that are here today because their parents made them come (laughs) and I ask myself what do they need I I could teach my grandson how to use a table saw I could teach him how to change a tire I, I could teach him a lot of stuff I could teach them how to shoot a squirrel in the backyard. I I do it all the time when they crawl up on my deck. I hope that doesn't offend you. But what does my grandson need? What, What do these kids need as they come here to this church week after week? How will they know Oak Valley was the real church? Every church has some moral code. Good or bad, every church has a moral code. Cults have moral codes. Well, they they know Oak Valley is a real church because of Oak Valley's moral code. (laughs) How will they know Oak Valley is a real church? Because of their doctrinal statement? Every church has got a doctrinal statement, and everybody in it believes that their doctrinal statement is biblical. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Out of all of the hundreds, maybe thousands of churches in New Hanover County, how are these kids that might not come if you didn't make them get in the back seat and ride over here with you, how are they going to know this is the real church? They're going to know when they walk in and they see people relating in the body of Christ like they've never seen people relate in any other place. And there's going to be a, a, a magnetism. There's going to be an aroma to those relationships. And Those relationships are going to be loving. And those relationships are going to be life-giving. And those relationships are going to be sin-bearing. And those relationships are going to manifest the undeniable presence of Jesus Christ. And that's how they're going to know Oak Valley is the kind of church that Scripture would command them to be a part of. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, take the truth of Your Word and challenge that one who is here that has been looking for love in all the wrong places. That's been looking for love in... Christless relationship after Christless relationship that's been looking for love in idolatry that's been looking for love in the acquisition of more that's been looking for love in the mirror as they love themselves I pray that you would let them see today that the desire for love that is in the depth of their soul was placed there by You so that You and You alone could be the only One that would satisfy it. And I pray that in Your grace You would draw them to Yourself and that they would run to You this morning. But Father, I also pray for those of us who say that we know You. I pray that You would convict our hearts I'm convicted as I stand here this morning of the many times that I've been in conversations with people and I wasn't life-giving. Didn't even think about giving life. Didn't care if I gave life. I lived in a functional denial of the presence of the real presence of Christ in my life. And the purpose of that interaction even to begin with was to be for Your glory. And so I... I pray that You would just convict us of our thoughtlessness as it relates to Christ in us and Christ flowing out of us and our insensitivity to those around us and their need for other believers who are filled with Christ to have the fruit of the Spirit flowing out of them and into those around us. So convict us and Yet, encourage us that it's not through our efforts, it's by Your grace. It's not through our power, but it's by Your power. I pray that the truths of being life-giving and sin-bearing would would be manifested in this community so that anyone who is in any sin would not have to shroud that sin, would not have to be a deceiver and put a mask on and walk in here and act like everything's okay and be scared to death of somebody in this body finding out that they're walking through the muck and mire of sin, but they can't reveal it here because they'll be rejected instead of brothers and sisters gathering around saying that we can bear that with You. And we can take You to the One who has borne it perfectly. So weigh those things heavy on our heart. Lord Jesus, what You have done for us and May our worship flow out of that realization. But then may our relationships manifest that reality as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.